It's been called the Forgotten War. Some Americans may remember Korea as the setting for the film and television comedy series MASH, but for those who fought there in the 1950s, there was nothing funny about it. I'm Oliver North, and in this stirring podcast, you'll learn about the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir, dubbed the Frozen Chosen. It was one of the coldest battles on record ever since Napoleon set foot in Russia. Air temperatures reached 60 degrees below zero. This is a story of exceptional bravery and of courage above and beyond the call of duty. And you'll be moved by this epic tale of endurance and perseverance. It was a momentous fight, not just by a small handful of troops, but by tens of thousands of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. These are the people who made up the 10th Corps in Korea during that terrible winter of 1950. And you'll know why those who fought their way out of a communist Chinese trap call themselves the chosen few. Theirs truly is a war story that deserves to be told. If you're hiring, you know that quality hires keep your business moving forward. But you also know it can take a lot of time to find the right candidate for the right job. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job on over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, so you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com strive. That's ZipRecruiter.com strive. One more time, get it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com strive. I'm Oliver North, and this is War Stories. It's been called the Forgotten War. Many in this country remember Korea as the setting for the film and television series MASH. But for the 1.8 million who fought there, there was nothing funny about it. For three long years, the Korean War was a war of surprises. Enemies weren't what they appeared to be. And some say the mission was unclear. At the end, General MacArthur, fresh from glory in World War II, would ultimately be fired by President Harry Truman. And for the fighting man on the ground, this was a war of extremes, fought in temperatures ranging from a blistering 115 degrees in the summer to a frigid 60 degrees below zero in winter. Tonight on War Stories, we bring you the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir, the Frozen Chosen, one of the coldest battles on record, fought in temperatures that haven't been experienced in combat since Napoleon set foot in Russia. It's a story of exceptional bravery, of courage above and beyond the call of duty, an epic tale of endurance and perseverance, not just by a small handful of troops, but by the thousands of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, including some British commandos. They made up the 10th Corps in Korea during that terrible winter of 1950.
1945, the last thing on America's mind was the Korean Peninsula. Across the country, we were welcoming our heroes back home from World War II. Over the next five years, the United States experienced a post-war boom, both in economics and babies. And the military had few problems attracting strong young men. I was a miner in, uh, in Idaho, a hard rock miner, deep mines. Tired of the mines at 17 years old, Frank Kerr joined the Marines. He was made company photographer. This is just a couple years after World War II, and there was still a great sense of patriotism in the country. I wanted to go into an elite service. I thought the Marine Corps was the elite of the elite. After working hard to receive an Army officer's commission, 25-year-old former Marine John Gray expected to serve his tour in a tropical paradise. I was under orders to report to uh, Fort Shafter, Hawaii, to the 5th Regimental Combat Team for what I thought would be a delightful tour in Hawaii. So much for this post-war euphoria. A face-off between the Soviet Union and the United States was brewing. Troops like then-Sergeant David Hackworth had traded one enemy for another. Well, I think it was an easy transference from uh, to hate the Nazis to hate the communists. And their conduct across Europe especially wasn't too uh, conducive to uh, our wanting to like them. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. The flashpoint would be North Korea where the Soviets had installed a communist dictatorship. The North Koreans made no secret of their intentions to take over their neighbors to the south. Border firefights were a regular occurrence. In Korea, the North would create little excursions into South uh, Korea. In those days, we had what they called the Truman Line around the world. And the Truman Line was that any time the communists came across the so-called Truman Line, we knew we were going to go into war. in the early morning hours of June 24th, 1950. That line was crossed in a big way. It was looked upon initially in the first few hours as just another one of these border incursions. And as it built up, it was quickly realized that they were coming on with a main full-scale attack. 90,000 communist North Korean troops overran South Korean forces and lightly armed, poorly trained U.S. occupation troops. Previously, the Truman administration had given mixed signals about U.S. involvement in another Asian war. The president was now clearly concerned. My fellow Americans, I want to talk to you plainly tonight about what we're doing in Korea. The question we have had to face is whether the communist plan of conquest can be stopped without a general war. Len Mafioli heard the president. As a young Marine, he'd already experienced Iwo Jima. But when Korea exploded, he re-enlisted. They swept down through the, across the 38th parallel and into Seoul and in a matter of a couple of days had taken the capital and kept moving south. And they were down to the Pusan perimeter in a matter of a few days. That telegraph operator for the Southern Railroad uh, delivered that message from the Department of the Army, which changed my orders uh, to read Far East Command. At that time, I knew where I was going. As diplomats postured, the U.S. asked the newly formed U.N. Security Council to take action against North Korea. The Soviets refused even to show up for the vote against their allies, and after a resolution passed condemning the attack, troops were hastily dispatched. I was met by a potential 
regimental commander, Homan Listenberg, who asked, where in the hell have you been? Well, I got orders yesterday. He said, you got five days to form a battalion and get it on a ship and go to war. But the American troops still stationed in Japan and Europe weren't the lean, mean fighting machine everyone remembered from World War II. It was like a bayonet that wasn't used. It was very rusty by the time of June of 1950. Many of them had joined the army uh, to uh, see the world, and they were having quite an adventure in Japan. At Camp Pendleton, battalion commanders like Colonel Ray Davis were concerned about their troops' readiness. And so you've now got 800-plus Marines, most of whom have combat experience from World War II or not. No, just a few, a few leaders, a few leaders. We had some who hadn't even been to boot camp. In those first few days of fighting, the South Koreans were massacred, and American troops met a fierce enemy. Our, our eyeballs in North Koreans at that particular time. We uh, fought some major engagements down there. We jumped off on August the 7th, 1950, and I'll never forget that. They were going to dig in in that area to thwart the North Korean army from going further south. They were attacked uh, and immediately overwhelmed. There were very few survivors. Mostly were dead or missing. But the line held at the Pusan perimeter, a tiny corner of southeast Korea. We had our back up against the wall. It was nowhere to go but swim to Japan. A very important element at this point was the arrival of an expeditionary brigade of United States Marines that saved the day, that fought and didn't run, stood tall. Incheon was a sleepy port town in General Douglas MacArthur's dream of a D-Day for Korea. Whose idea was the Incheon landing? I gather MacArthur's. MacArthur insisted that he have a force to land at Incheon and cut off the North Korean army. That night at Camp Drake, none of us slept. It was complete silence, though. You could hear a pin drop. Everybody was, had their thoughts on what was going to happen tomorrow. I knew we were going to war. And so we trained around the clock. We had just worked day and night all the way across. We were really sweating, so to speak, that shortly uh, we would find ourselves on the battlefield. Was General MacArthur's plan for the attack north an act of strategic genius or a suicide mission? Find out when we return to War Stories. In the assessment of everyone, the Marine Corps, the United States Navy, the North Koreans, it would be suicidal to conduct an amphibious invasion in Incheon. D-Day on the faraway waters of the Yellow Sea again finds young Americans readying for a rendezvous with death, this time on the beaches of the Korean port of Incheon. MacArthur had one chance to avoid defeat by landing over the treacherous seawall at Incheon. MacArthur was basically a law unto himself, overrode all of his advisors, his Marines and his naval advisors, and said, we can do it. A high extreme tide situation led the North Koreans to believe that no one would attempt an amphibious landing there. But MacArthur thought on the very highest tide we could get troops in there, and that was on the 15th of September, the landing came off without a hitch. Just by the grace of God, this very high-risk operation uh, was launched and was successful, but it was very, very precarious and extremely dangerous, and MacArthur had one thing going for him, and that was a lot of luck. 
The North Koreans had made a fatal error by spreading themselves too thin. MacArthur caught them by surprise and cut off their supply lines. At this point in time, the North Koreans were the meat and a very powerful sandwich. They got clobbered and panicked and ran. They were out of ammunition, they were shy on rations, uh, so they were on their butt. MacArthur had the North Koreans on the run. In four days, his 20,000 troops reached the outskirts of Seoul. We were flushed with victory to success of the Incheon invasion. Indeed, it was a, a masterful envelopment maneuver on the part of, of MacArthur. The North Koreans thereafter were never able to make uh, much of a stand. Reinforcements arrived from the States. Joe Owen, a 26-year-old Marine second lieutenant, remembered them as green troops. I picked up kids who would never hefted a grenade, didn't know the feel of a grenade. We had two weeks to train them. Three weeks aboard ship, we gave them weapons training. Five weeks from the day we formed up, we went under enemy fire outside of Seoul. Green or not, it only took seven days to liberate Seoul from its communist captors. But it wasn't enough for MacArthur. He wanted to move north and free all of Korea. There was talk already by late September of having the whole thing wrapped up by Thanksgiving, wasn't it? Oh, yes. We were promised to be home by Thanksgiving, later be home by Christmas, and so on. When was the mission changed to go into North Korea? Apparently, at, at that time, right after the Seoul operation. Marines get ashore at Wonsan, and then the mission up, is... Up the coast. Move, move the, north. The overall mission was to go to the Yalu at the border and block the Chinese. What they didn't know was that the enemy had changed, and they were about to be outnumbered six to one. Morale was sky high. But to me... I could see signs as we advanced northward of a formidable enemy. Word to MacArthur's command in Tokyo fell on deaf ears. We were told at first that uh, there were just scattered bands of uh, Chinese up there. Our leaders, General Smith, Colonel Litzenberg, Colonel Davis knew better. And when we moved up, uh, they told us to be ready to fight. And we were. Did anybody anticipate at that point that we were going to have the communist Chinese intervene in this war? Well, I did, because 140 miles inside North Korea, my battalion had a fight with a Chinese regiment. And I had 600 dead Chinese, 100 in a cage, and the Tokyo staff came over and dismissed it as an isolated incident. In the meantime, my long-range patrols were finding Chinese. Every village I went through, my interpreter was hearing from the population, Chinese, 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 and this was in October. And so... Uh, I knew Chinese were in the war. Somehow Tokyo did not. Tokyo doesn't understand that the Chinese are in it. They obviously ignore or reject the information that you'd provided from your unit that was the first to be in contact with the communist Chinese. Is anybody back at either Tokyo or in Hawaii concerned that perhaps not just a handful, but tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Chinese might be in this thing? I do know that... Uh, our own commander, General Smith, and I saw messages later where he was explaining to the commandant that he's probably going to be fired because he told him he was not moving north under any circumstances until he got his forces together and got them supplied. Torsten Stahl, Christmas and homecoming would elate anybody. With those warm thoughts in mind, we more or less ignored the ominous signs of winter. It was beginning to get cold already. 3,000 U.S. soldiers and 17,000 Marines headed north into a frozen wasteland. The mission? Secure the Chosin Reservoir. 
my battalion led the way to the west to join up with the 8th Army. By now it's getting cold in Korea. As soon as we got up on the plateau, the, the temperatures went from moderate to 16 below zero one night. The, uh, apparently the Siberian winds changed and uh, we weren't prepared for it. All our vehicles, everything was out of action for a couple of days and they issued us some more clothing and whatnot. The vehicles aren't prepared for winter? The troops prepared for winter? No, no we weren't. I say we, we, were, we paused at Coterie for a couple of days to get, get clothing and get everything back, back to, in shape for the, for the cold. To me, I had a, a haunting anxiety. It, it just seemed too good to be true. Under the cover of night, the communist Chinese are about to blow the hopes of victory before Christmas sky high. Since the days of the pilgrims, Americans have given thanks for the many blessings bestowed upon them. Well, Thanksgiving of 1950 uh, was one to remember. Those back in the States feasted on their turkey. So did our troops in Korea. Turkey with all the trimmings. But it wasn't quite the same at the Chosin Reservoir. Of course, it was served in about 15 degrees below zero, so as soon as you got out of the mess tent with it, it was frozen. And so I insisted that I have a day off and get some turkeys. Well, they came up frozen. And my cooks uh, couldn't figure out how to get them cooked in time. And so we set up a double tent, put two stoves in the middle, stacked turkeys around it, and thawed the turkeys enough to, to get them cooked for Thanksgiving. The regiment I was with had been up on what they call the east side of the reservoir, and they pulled us back. They were going to send us around and send us up to a place called Udonne, and they, they fed us Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, I think none of us will ever forget that. And that place where we had our Thanksgiving, that became Turkey Hill. With the turkey barely digested, cold Siberian winds roared in. MacArthur made the decision to split the troops. The Marines were moved to the west side of the reservoir in preparation for a move north, and the Army took their place in the east, where they were told to hold the ground. It was a bitterly cold uh, convoy trip, and of course, uh, we just had uh, that hot meal, which boosted our morale. And we uh, moved up the east shore, uh, still with a euphoria. got terribly cold and it did that very fast. If you crank in the modern wind, wind chill factor, it got down to 116 and more below zero because of the high winds and the cold and the God Almighty was terrible. It was just terrible. After the Thanksgiving thing, we went up to a place called Udomni, uh, which is just a little way stop, a village. This was a, a real hurry-up operation. Tenth Corps wanted them, wanted them accomplished yesterday, you know. That's, that's the rush, the need to move, 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 move. And, and so that was the, the tempo when we moved up on the east shore. In the rush to chase the Korean communists north, our troops were stretched way too thin. We would enter into battalion positions that were separate from one another when we should be consolidated all battalions together. We thought uh, we weren't going to be there any length of time. We would resume the attack the following day. When darkness fell on the night of November 27th, it was 60 degrees below zero. Suddenly... More than 120,000 communist Chinese troops made their presence known. I 
God, they're they're everywhere. There are tons of Chinese. They broke in on us uh, in a surprise attack, uh, overran I uh, Company positions before we even knew they were there. They penetrated in the inner perimeter and. Uh, all of a sudden, they were on top of um, my mortars. They had roughly 120,000 people after us. All of our forces were under attack around the, the perimeter of the 7th Marines and the 5th Marines. And Fox Company, 7th Marines, which had been assigned to protect the pass, came under heavy attack by a Chinese regiment. And the pass was pretty much seized by the Chinese. And so we were faced with a problem of, first I had Charlie Company cut off. I had to go and rescue it, and I was told to go and get uh, Fox Company. But in the meantime, the, the Chinese own fault had reached a point where I was withdrawn, and uh, other efforts were made to rescue Fox Company for a couple of days. Daylight revealed the carnage. Over 200 soldiers and Marines killed. After that first night, our two battalions were blooded in their separate perimeters. And up in the Fort Erie, Colonel Faith had captured two Chinese prisoners. And one of them was from the 80th Division, and another one was from the 81st Division. These prisoners were indicators that we were facing possibly two divisions, the Chinese. Heaviest hit were the Army troops under the command of Colonel Don Faith. General MacArthur sent General Allman to survey the damage. He told General Allman, General, we're in deep trouble up here. General Allman retorted, to uh, Colonel Faith saying, uh, you're not going to let a few Chinese laundrymen stop you, are you? We're going to continue the attack. It's minus 60 degrees, pitch black, the area is crawling with communist Chinese troops, and your weapon is frozen. How do you get it to work? When we come back, the Marines have the answer. This is what 120,000 communist Chinese troops looked like just before they arrived at the Chosin Reservoir. And this is what faced the survivors of the 31st Army Regiment and the 1st and 5th Marine Divisions. There's a split between the Army on the east and the Marines in the west. Right. And, of course, that's never a good tactical situation if I no. remember what you used to teach me. That's right. We're split, Bradley uh, split up and... and uh, General Smith's whole effort was to get his division back together. The Chosin Reservoir was a trap. Our meager troops were divided across the reservoir's frozen wasteland. They did attack at night, and so most of the fighting up at Chosin was at night. And when the Chinese attacked, they used ancient warrior tactics. They were a primitive army. The Chinese used the same uh, kind of devices that they used two, three thousand years before, which were bugles, gongs, uh, for the grunt to be laying out there at night and uh, hearing the Chinese yelling, uh, hey, G.I., we're going to kill you, and then hear the bugles playing and seeing their flares go off. All of that uh, did kind of uh, uh, put you on edge. During the day, the American troops plugged holes in the line with the help of air power from the Navy and Marine Corsairs. But it wasn't enough. On December 1st, after four days of furious fighting, our troops were cut off and surrounded by an ocean of communist Chinese. Air temperatures of 60 degrees below zero, 
made matters worse. We were pathetically undertrained about uh, cold weather fighting. Sometimes uh, you would uh, you know, just be stretched out on the ground and try to get up to run and your feet would be frozen, so frozen that you couldn't feel them and so you'd fall, you'd have to crawl. The cold was the common enemy. They were as miserable as we were. The Chinese would oftentimes have big ice cubes, literally ice around their feet. There was just no way to get warm. These are photographs that Frank Kerr took of his fellow Marines on the west side of the reservoir. That battle, in terms of cold, was the worst cold that anybody's heard. Worse than the Germans at Stalingrad, or that Washington had at Valley Forge. It was just incredibly cold. We paid enormous price uh, in terms of casualties from cold weather. Frostbite, people's fingers and hands and arms and, and uh, feet just rotting off from frostbite, turning black and falling off. And the sub-zero temperatures added another challenge. It was so cold, incidentally, that semi-automatic and automatic weapons often wouldn't work. It was just too damn cold. In the, in the cold, the radios don't work. The weapons don't work. How'd you, right. keep, how'd you keep the M1s and the, and the BARs? The BARs, uh, we found the most effective means was hair oil. Vitalis used to come up with our, uh, with our ammo. And uh, that's one way we did it. The other way, uh, for a very, very quick effect, uh, you, could, uh, you could urinate on a weapon. Blizzards raged and supplies ran dangerously low. Something had to be done to escape the frozen hell. The idea is we were going to pull back and stop at each village and strengthen with the people from there, and then go back and stop at the next village and strengthen with the people from there, and finally do the, the final breakout from the plateau. And, and go down the mountain. My regimental commander sent for me and said, Ray, we're desperate. We've got to get Fox Company rescued. We've got to get the pass open. That's all. We're going back through the mountains. We'll fight our way out to the north and go out through the mountains and approach it from that way. And he says, plan approved, move out. Any chance of breaking out from the enemy's trap rested with this man, then 24-year-old Marine First Lieutenant Chuen Lee, born and raised in Sacramento, California, Lee was a tough, hard Marine who spoke Chinese. One of the great legends of the Marine Corps is the breakout that you led coming back from the Chosin Reservoir. Would you describe that for us? Everything was on my shoulders, and I, I, I realized that. And contrary to what a lot of people say, um, uh, the circumstances were such that, uh, to me, it was a virtual mission impossible. A gripping tale of heroism in the frozen hell of Korea, coming up next on War Stories. These hard-bitten troops facing a Korean Dunkirk never lose faith in their own ability to keep fighting when the situation is blackest. Lieutenant Chu and Lee was the Marine Point man to escape the Chinese trap on the west side of the reservoir. With Joe Owen and the survivors of Baker Company, they'd try to reach the town of Hagaru, where the Marines held a secure position. It was only 10 miles away, but it might as well have been on the moon. In that final attack on, on Fox Hill, uh, you lead the attack. And this is, I mean, crucial to the breakout. Yeah. yeah. How many Marines did you have left that were combat effective? I think I had about... Uh... 20, 25. It was finally determined that the only way around those guys was to, for us to get off the main road and to go up into the mountains. My pal here led the battalion train through the mountains and, uh, and through a blizzard. The weather was numbing cold. The men were 
pretty much exhausted. We could not see the terrain features. The enemy factor was unknown. It could be uh, a squad ahead of us, or it could be a division around the corner. We, we didn't know. At that time, Marines did not attack at night. That night, we attacked. The night attack was a surprise to the Chinese. You ended up right there at the point of your unit, of the entire battalion. You were right, right up there at the front end of it. I had to because everybody had to be kept, kept in sight. And the two men ahead of me had to break trail in the knee-deep ice. The enemy stood up right in front of me. We were nearing the crest, and they were in their big, bulky, quilted uniforms. And I shot two of them at point-blank range. When we hit the Chinese position, uh, they, were, they were, as they say, quite surprised. Chewing Lee is standing up on a great big boulder yelling at him in Chinese. I was standing right next to him. And uh, they're, they're coming out and, uh, out of their holes, and while our men are clobbering them as they come out, and Lee, I don't know what you were yelling at him, but it, was, it impressed the hell out of them, I'll tell you that. On the reservoir's east side, the Army's Colonel Faith and his 3,000 men were decimated. He was down to a few hundred men, and as one of those soldiers left, John Gray knew they had nothing to lose. It was clearly apparent to Colonel Faith that we were running out of blood and ammunition, food and fuel, and it was also uh, obvious to him that there would be no rescue force to come in. He uh, decided in a desperate move, if he was going to have his command uh, annihilated, he'd go down fighting in a positive way, in an offensive way, and he would try to break out of that trap. We were fortunate in having some air cover there. They came in to, to drop napalm on the Chinese who were blocking our advance southward down the road. While the Army fought unbeatable odds, the remaining 5,000 Marines on the west side made some headway. When we broke across, and finally we, we cleared away the Chinese between us and Fox. And when we went up to their position, first of all, you could see the men of Fox. They had, I think, something in the area of 75% casualties. There were men fighting with uh, wounded arms, wounded legs. They had uh, piled up Chinese bodies to use as parapets for their weapons. We could walk literally from 100 yards out across Chinese bodies without ever walking on the snow. We had fought like hell to get there. You've got casualties, you've got frostbite, yes. you've got frozen limbs, you've got gunshot wounds, you've got people that are just basically exhausted. How'd you handle your Well, uh, the uh, one thing is we prided ourselves on never, ever leaving a wounded man behind. After a firefight, we would collect them and send out a working party to uh, carry, the, carry the wounded back down to the MSR. It's a philosophy of the Marine Corps, and actually it helps uh, psychologically, because you know that they're not going to leave you out there. They're going to come and get you. While standing on the bank of the frozen reservoir, Colonel Faith was shot and killed. The remaining men of the 31st took to using the dead to save the living. What we did was grisly. We stripped the clothing from the dead in order, in order to put them over the wounded to, to, to keep them warmer. And as we did so, we were so short on ammunition, we'd even searched through all the pockets for ammunition. The Corsairs tried to help the beleaguered troops, but a soldier's worst nightmare became a reality. 
one of the uh, Corsairs came in with a napalm strike, instead of going forward and falling on the Chinese, it fell on our spearhead and, and burned a lot of our own soldiers alive. Uh, that was uh, kind of like Dante's Inferno. With their backs against the wall, there was only one route of escape left. Cross the frozen chosen reservoir on foot and use the trucks for the dead and wounded. But the Chinese didn't let that happen. And there we saw them throw grenades into the back of the trucks. Some of the wounded were on fire. And you wouldn't think they could possibly move, but in the agony of being aflame, uh, some of them managed to make their way over the back of the tailgate and fall onto the hard ground and back of the trucks. And that was, that was, a, that was a haunting vision that uh, I'll never forget. Death was frozen into macabre ice sculptures. More than 1,000 men from the 31st Regiment died on the ice at Chosin. Another 1,700 were wounded. I caught a big shrapnel wound in my hip, right hip. I had a bullet through my left thigh and another bullet wound through my lower left leg, and my feet were frostbitten. John Gray was one of 300 souls left trying to make it out on foot. Less than a mile from the safe zone at Hagaru, he collapsed. His rescuer was a most unlikely hero, a former soldier for the Third Reich. He fought with the Wehrmacht in World War II. They called him Bernie. I told old Bernie to take our seven-man force and back to the Marines at Hagaree, and he refused my order. He says, never, never will I leave my officer. <laughs> and I wasn't about to prefer charges for insubordination because old, old Bernie uh, helped me to move on down the east shore. I will remember those words always. High up in that, uh, that chosen reservoir uh, basin, he says, welcome aboard, sir. <laughs> you know, Marine Corps term, Army doesn't say welcome aboard, but uh, as a former Marine World War II, those are the most welcome words I ever heard. I knew then that I had a chance. When we come back, how the Marines from the frozen Chosen managed to give 100,000 Korean civilians the gift of freedom while fighting their way back to the North Korean coast. From the Changjin Reservoir to Hagaru and the escape port of Hongnam is a long, terrible route, especially in the teeth of a stinging Siberian gale. By numbers, the battle for Chosun was devastating. 40,000 dead communist Chinese. For the army, nearly nine out of every 10 soldiers killed or wounded, and half the 10,000 Marines were killed or wounded as well. Making it to safety in Hagaru wasn't easy for Baker Company Lieutenants Joe Owen and Chu and Lee. You both were wounded. Within half an hour of each other. I want you to tell me about how he got wounded. Well, it was our final assault. And uh, we were down to about out of, out of our we were down to about 20 percent of our personnel remaining at that time. We had 27 men left in that rifle company out of original 215. Uh, Kurt was up on the point, and uh, he he got shot in the face, and so they took him away, and uh, that was the last they saw him in the assault. Five minutes later, a couple of Chinese popped out. They, they had me dead to rights. One got me uh, with a rifle. Well, they got me with a burp gun across the arms. Despite their own devastating losses, the Marines were shocked when they saw the remnants straggling in from the Army's 31st Regiment. We met up with some soldiers. It was really a tragedy. Poor soldiers, they did the best they could, but they were overwhelmed. They went up poorly equipped, 
uh, and without proper ammo, without proper gear even, cold weather gear, and a lot of them came down just frozen. All along the route, they were harassed by communist fire from front and rear. Now they're getting set for a breakthrough during a Korean Valley Forge. For three days, the Americans rested and licked their wounds in Hagaru, a small village at the foot of the Chosin Reservoir. Troops built runways for medevac aircraft to move the wounded out. The remaining soldiers and Marines had one last hurdle. In a massive convoy, they had to make it to Hongnam, some 60 miles away. There, troop transport ships were ready to take the men out of North Korea. But there was a problem. Only one tiny road out of Hagaru, and the Chinese knew it. You rest at Hagaru for a couple of days, get, get some more ammunition, yes. and then continue the mission. My battalion mission was to go out through the mountains to protect the, uh, the west flank of the road that was going to be used for the fight down south. You're up on the high ground. Yes, but I could see the Chinese defenders down there. and My troops found up in the one, one area about 50 Chinese in positions all asleep, and we were able to destroy them without a single casualty. Back down the road, there was fierce fighting. We had to uh, fight through one hell of a lot of roadblocks uh, to get out of there. The Chinese knew that the only route of attack we had, and they bolstered it with defense all the way. By the time the convoy battled its way to the halfway point, a painful decision had to be made. The dead were left behind. So we had a mass grave in a place called Koto Ri. We resented it deeply, but we understood the reason. You're just, there was no more room in the end. We had no way to carry them. But the Chinese had one last surprise. They blew up the only bridge outside Koto Ri. That left the convoy stranded on one side of a valley. But American ingenuity had a solution. There was a bridge blown up. That would have been at the end of the line, except there was a miraculous thing. They flew in a treadway, I think they're called treadway bridges. They flew it in from Japan, parachuted in, and the guys placed that across this big couple thousand foot drop, and the vehicles were able to get across that. The fighting continued, and as the troops made their way south, Frank noticed they weren't alone. Refugees from the war zone were pouring into the column. Thousands and thousands of North Koreans started joining us, trying to join us, rather. They wanted to get out. We kept them at distance because if they were close to us, they were going to get themselves killed because, you know, we're getting ourselves killed. But they did follow us. 100,000 men, women, and children fleeing communism made their way south with the troops. It was share and share alike, food and protection from the troops and warmth from the Koreans, literally. The people, the Koreans in this place started burning the place. Literally, this is the truth, started burning it down to keep everybody warm until they could leave with us the next day. Finally, the ordeal was over. It was December 10th, 1950. The convoy made its way to Hongnam. Dozens of ships wait to take the troops and refugees to freedom. Emotions ran high. Hard to say goodbye to those guys? Oh, yeah, they were. <laughs> I, I didn't mention it, but in our trek through the mountains, I heard not one complaint or one beef out of those Marines because they were going to rescue other Marines, you know, all for one, one for all. And it has stuck with me ever since. As ships were boarded, the full extent of the military disaster made its way to Washington. 
President Truman blamed General MacArthur. Here MacArthur became so arrogant that he crossed swords with this very tough, hard guy named Harry Truman who sacked him, and he should have been sacked. Politics aside, no one will ever forget the sacrifices and heroism of those men. You know, the men bitch about everything all the time, but they never faltered. They never faltered. And Lee and I will tell you the same thing, that once we told the men, let's move out, we never had to look back to see if they were still going. The best description of it is, we all knew that we were going to die, but we all knew the division would survive. That makes absolutely no sense to anybody but somebody who was there. We few, we chosen few, we eternal band of brothers. He who sheds his blood with me is my brother. And there's no other closer bonding than brothers that have committed and risked their very lives and shed their blood for one another. More on the hell that was the frozen chosen when War Stories returns. By New Year's Day 1951, the troops had no idea that they'd have to hunker down for another two and a half years and two more frozen, bone-chilling winters before the bloody stalemate in Korea would finally come to an end. Though no ground was gained, none was lost. And at the frozen Chosen, the Marines fought their way out, brought with them their dead, their wounded, and their equipment. For his heroism during the night attack that assured the Marine breakout from the frozen Chosen, Colonel Ray Davis was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. As Vince Lombardi once said, it's not whether you get knocked down, it's whether you get back up again. That's what the 1st Marine Division and the survivors of the 10th Corps had done during the Chosin breakout. Theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy, and me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.